Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. How should those of us committed to a biblical sexual ethic treat those who are same-sex attracted or who identify as the opposite sex? In our polarized world, it seems like only two options are available to us. One, we accept, approve, and celebrate LGBT plus lifestyles, or two, we deny, denigrate, and dismiss them. Either we reject scripture or reject love. Surely there must be a better way. Do you feel this tension? Can we show love without compromising our morals? In this episode, we'll take a look at what the Bible says about sexual ethics before asking how we can be like Jesus in loving outsiders without betraying our own code of ethics. Here now is episode 407, Reaching LGBT Plus People. I struggled over the, the correct number of letters in my acronym here. I, call, I ended up settling on reaching LGBT plus people. Sometimes they have a Q. Sometimes there's an I. My earlier version of this was LGBTQIA. And then I was like, well, I'm not really going to touch on the QIA in this teaching. So I shortened it. Hopefully that doesn't upset anybody. But uh, this is a group of people that I'd like to spend a little. I know it's a sensitive subject, so I will try to handle it in a sensitive manner. Uh, But let me tell you my bottom line before I get started is that you're called to love people in this category. That's my point. (laughs) Simple as that. In our society today, intolerance is rising and continues to rise. There used to be a time when, uh, for example, somebody in a lesbian or gay lifestyle that you were told to accept that person. And then it was, no, you have to approve of their behavior, and now today we're in a state where you are called to, or there seems to be pressure to, celebrate that lifestyle. And if if you're not willing to do that, then you're considered hateful, bigoted, narrow-minded, or uh, some sort of very bad person. And yet we as Christians, we we find ourselves in a difficult place on this subject because We don't have a discovered sexual ethic. Our ethic is received from Scripture. And it's not like it's some sort of new idea that we consider marriage between a man and a woman to be the proper boundary of sexual expression. That's not a new idea. We could go back 20 centuries to the time of Jesus, and we can see in our New Testament that this is very clearly the standard by which Christians lived in that time. But what's even more remarkable is that if you look at Jesus, he, put, he points back to Moses. Fifteen centuries before Christ, here's Moses, and in the law that God gave him to the people, we see these very same ideas. And Moses really doesn't report his own time either, because we, we uh, believe Moses wrote the book of Genesis, which really records the original creation, however many centuries before Moses was. And that's where I'd like to begin Today, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 
And just, I want to read a little bit in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, just to lay a foundation for what it is that we as Christians, and I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about us, how we as Christians are taught to think about this subject of sexuality. Uh, it says in Genesis 1:27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the the key point here in verse 27 is that we have two, two genders, right? We have male, we have female, we have God as the creator. It's not an accident that women exist. Right? This is part of the original design. It's not an accident that men exist. It's part of the original design that there are male and female. And we know that that's talking about biological sex, not mental gender, because in verse 28, the mandate is to be fruitful and multiply. And that only works when you have biologically opposite gender, uh, sexes. Sexes is talking about your physical body, whereas gender is what you think you are. So verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, that is a pretty clear indication that we're talking about biological male and female. Chapter 2, verse 18, and it also tells us that sex is good. It's part of God's original creation, which I think is pretty cool. All right, Genesis 2, 18, uh, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept he took one of his ribs, and closed up its place with the flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a what? A woman, and brought her to the man, and the man said, wow, you are so different. <laughs> no. See, I would, that's, that's what I would think the man would say. Seeing a woman for the first time, he'd be like, you're just so different. But that's not what he said. He said, you're so similar. Look at this in verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A couple of quick points here. I mean, I I can't really get into too much detail on this section. It's very, very foundational for all Jewish and Christian thinking about humanity, right? So this is why Genesis is such a big deal for us. Uh, But first of all, this term fit or suitable, some translations use, like in verse 18, for example, you have a helper fit. The word helper is easer, and it's a word typically, almost always used of God in the first five books of the Bible. So it's not that women are inferior because they're helpers. God is called the helper most of the time in the first five books of the Bible. And then the other point, just quickly to make here, is that this word fit or suitable, it's a word in Hebrew that means opposite. It's somebody that stands eye to eye with the man. 
It's, it's not somebody that is like in some way inferior. Once again, it's, it's communicating actually the opposite of that, inequality between the sexes. And this is what God sets up in the beginning. He brings all the animals to the man and, and, and basically shows him that like, you see how these, all these animals, they have a, another person, or not a person, but another animal, another sex that they can relate to and that they can have children with and so on but not for Adam. So he feels his loneliness by looking at the animal realm and seeing how they are all paired off. And God didn't have to do that. He could have just made the two right from the beginning like that, right? But he wanted to show the man his need for the woman. And then he brings the woman to the man and presents the woman to the man. And the man says, wow, she's just like me. (laughs) Basically, that's my summary of that. Uh, But then verse 24 is really the key verse for our focus for today. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse is so important because later on in the Bible, we refer back to this as the foundation for what marriage is and sexual expression. In verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I think that's pretty interesting, too. We could talk a lot about that. Well, look at chapter 3. I think this would be an easy way to show this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Isn't that interesting? The very first thing they notice once they disobey God, is that they're naked. Some sort of shame or, yeah, uh, their, their own naked bodies is what like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> we're naked. <laughs> Whereas before that, they were innocent. They were in the garden and, the, and that wasn't an issue. And so I think that's really, really interesting that there is, for us as Christians, there are two lenses through which we see human sexuality, and you know, humankind in general. One is a creation lens. We recognize that God, first of all, created us in his image. That was Genesis 1.27. Both of us, the male and the female. And that there are two sexes that God created in the beginning, right? Male and female. So that's our creation theology, our creation lens. But then through the other lens, we, we notice that we are actually fallen, And so there are problems that we have with our bodies. Anybody have problems with your bodies? Okay, yeah. It's pretty common to have problems with our bodies at different stages in our lives. And in the end of our lives, we have the biggest problem with our body, namely that it dies. This is a big problem we have with our bodies. Uh, So how do we make sense of, of it? Well, we say, on the one hand, our bodies are good. Physicality is good because God made it. It's part of his good creation. He calls it good seven times over in the first chapter of the Bible. But at the same time, we recognize the truth that we are corrupted, we are fallen, we have impulses that would lead to hurting other people if we don't control them. And so uh, we have both of these lenses at the same time also applied to sexuality. Sex is pre-fall. So sex is good. Sex is part of God's good ordered creation, how he wanted people to... Uh, reproduce and fill the earth. Uh, but then there's a fallenness. Now we're like, oh, there's all the shame, and we're like, oh, we're naked. And we see a lot of other sexual um, behaviors condemned throughout the Bible 
as part of a fallen expression of sexuality. So the question is, how do we know what's God's good ordained parameters for sexuality, and how do we know where there is fallenness that we need to avoid? I suggest that Genesis 2.24 gives us a pretty good explanation of that. But uh, let's, let's ask Jesus that question. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 19. And uh, since we don't call ourselves Moseyans, we call ourselves Christians, right? So uh, let's, go to, let's go to Christ and see what he says about sexuality and marriage and everything else. And I think what you'll see is that Jesus is very much in line with what we read in Genesis. He builds his understanding on Genesis and God's creation itself. 19 verse 3, it says, And the Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That sounds remarkably like uh, no-fault divorce, doesn't it? (laughs) Maybe it's just a coincidence. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. So they asked Jesus a question about divorce. His immediate response is Genesis 1.27. So the first verse we looked at, he made them male and female. And then we get Genesis 2.24, verse 5. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So they asked Jesus a question about divorce. He quotes Genesis 1 about how we're made in God's image, male and female, right? And then he quotes Genesis 2 about how we are to leave and cleave and be one flesh. And Jesus is basically saying to them, what's wrong with you people? Why do you want to get rid of your wives, huh? If God has joined you together, why do you want to, why do you want to separate it? Verse 7, then they said to him, then it gets interesting, right? Because there's always the comeback. Moses commanded us to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples are hysterical here. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I think that is the funniest statement. (laughs) It's like, if I can't divorce her, then I better not get married at all. (laughs) Maybe these guys only had negative examples of married couples in their world. I don't know. Maybe it was a disciple that had a really cantankerous home life, right? (laughs) Very contentious. Who knows? Uh, But it's, it's a funny statement. Verse 11, right? But he said, this is Jesus, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Whoa, (laughs) hold on a second, Jesus. How do we get into eunuchs? (laughs) All right, let's go there. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. That would uh, be what we call today intersex, an intersex person. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That's sort of like the classic definition of a eunuch, somebody that's been castrated so that they can work in the royal chambers and whatnot. We don't need to go into that. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So there are different kinds of eunuchs. There are different kinds of single people. Some are those who have a birth defect, and so they basically cannot, you know, 
function in a marriage, and so they, they remain single. There are others that are like because of their job, such as, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch that is one of the very first Christians, was made that way. And then there are others who are what Jesus says, eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, these are people who choose celibacy, who choose singleness rather than marriage. And Jesus doesn't explain that. He just lays it out there and he's like, because the disciples say, well, maybe we shouldn't get married. And then Jesus talks about eunuchs in in sort of like these different categories. These are single people. These are non-married categories uh, that you could be. And Jesus was single. Jesus didn't get married. So getting married doesn't make you saved. It doesn't, doesn't wash away all your sins. No, that's Jesus. That's Jesus, not marriage that does that. Marriage might give you more sins, uh, depending on uh, how well it goes, right? There's my mom shaking her head. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, 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 can, it can cause more problems, can't it? Let's, let's look at uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 6. So we've looked at Genesis, and we've seen that God's ordered creation is to have male and female, to have uh, marriage within that. Now, in the Old Testament, they did wander from that you would have to say. Because it wasn't just one man and one woman a lot of times. Think of Solomon for a moment. He's like the opposite of a eunuch, right? He's, he's got 700 wives, bless his heart. I'm sure he had a lot of children as well and 300 more concubines on top of that. And then, you know, there are other examples of uh, men who had multiple wives. It's strange because nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, Thou shalt not have more than one wife. There's no commandment against polygamy in the Old Testament. But I challenge you to find me one positive example. One time where the narrative doesn't describe it as being a disaster for the guy and for the women. So over and over and over again, you see these, you know, like Abraham's got uh, Sarah and Hagar. Disaster, right? There's, there's contention in the home. It's like, it's like tearing his own heart out when he sends Ishmael away. He doesn't want to send his son away. But because of contention in the home, he has to do it. And, and so on and so forth. So I, I don't think that's part of God's original plan. And Jesus doesn't go back and say, well, Abraham had two wives, so why don't you just have as many wives as you want? He doesn't say that. He says a male and a female. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, the Apostle Paul addresses this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Uh, I believe when Paul says all things are lawful, he's quoting the Corinthians and their knucklehead slogans. He's not saying this himself. And some of your translations will put quotes around it to make that clear. So all things are not lawful, just for the record. Uh, But anyhow, verse 13, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24 again. 
So Paul's reason for why the Corinthians should not go to the brothels, which were considered to be totally acceptable forms of sexual expression in a city like Corinth in the first century, his reason for saying to them you cannot use prostitutes is Genesis 2.24, because sex is supposed to be within the boundary of marriage between a man and a woman. And then he he says that our bodies are a temple. Look at that, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So that, that's just a very brief survey of what the, what the Bible describes as far as gender and sexual ethics. It's very simple. I can summarize it in one sentence. Sex is meant to be from marriage between a man and a woman. Simple as that. That's our sexual, Christian sexual ethic, biblical sexual ethic. And that's our, that's our boundary. Now, the question is, what about people that don't limit sex to that boundary? What about people that find other ways to express it? Maybe they're same-sex attracted or some some other situations going on. Uh, How do we as Christians interact with people who have a different, different perspective on this subject? And I want to share with you a little story. This is from Preston Sprinkle's book called Embodied. And uh, it's a story of someone he knows named Leslie. He says, My friend Leslie was born female, but from the time Leslie was four years old, they experienced life as a boy. So uh, just to clarify, the, the the pronoun they is referring to this person, Leslie, not multiple people. Leslie felt like a boy, thought like a boy, played like a boy. When all the other girls wanted to play tea or house, I wanted to play football, Leslie told me. At the age of four... I proclaimed that Wonder Woman was going to be my wife, and we would have super-powered children. I thought nothing of it. Leslie also remembers loving Jesus wholeheartedly from a very young age. My earliest memories are are of the church nursery and Sunday school. I have always known that I was a beloved child of God. I cannot remember a time when God's truth was not an integral part of my life. Leslie's struggle increased with age, making it hard to fit in at youth group. I started, to, I started to keenly feel a distance between myself and other girls, Leslie remembers. I could not relate to their emerging womanhood. They were spending hours putting on makeup, styling the hair, and talking about boys. None of this interested me in the least. Like most kids wrestling with their gender identity, Leslie was wrestling alone. No one to talk to, no one to listen. Nobody seemed to care. Leslie sank into dark periods of depression. And when isolation met depression, suicidal thoughts quickly followed. I I lived this charade until high school rolled around, Leslie said, becoming increasingly despondent and suicidal. Finally, Leslie summoned the courage to go to the pastor for help. Leslie explained their dysphoria to him, hoping for some pastoral guidance. Instead of offering guidance, Leslie recalled, My pastor escorted me out the back door of his office and told me to never come back again. And I didn't. I didn't step foot in a church for the next 18 years. I hated Christians, especially pastors, from that point on. Sorry, I'm a pastor, so that, that really hits home. A lot of our perspective on this is really limited based on who we know and who we've met and if we've, if we've really heard the stories of people in these, who are walking in these shoes, okay? But what is clear to me, regardless, is that Jesus spent time with outcasts. 
Jesus said, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Look, you don't just get to be a friend of sinners if you're judging them the whole time. You don't don't get called a uh, glutton if you're not enjoying dinner with other people that are overdoing it. (laughs) These are all guilty by association terms for Jesus. Uh, Same thing with tax collectors. My goodness, tax collectors, Jesus? Oh, yeah, tax collectors. He would spend time with those turncoats. I mean, these people were really, really bad. They were really doing their own people dirty by partnering with the Roman government to take the money, the hard-earned money from really a lot of poor people and give it to the Roman government to continue to dominate and occupy Israel. Man, I think whatever your sexual issues are, we can all agree that that behavior was bad, right? Uh, And yet Jesus was with those people. Jesus was with them. He spent so much time with tax collectors that they call, you're a friend of tax collectors. That doesn't just happen. It's not like you get seen with one IRS agent and then now you get that nickname. Jesus spent time with people who were in different kind of sinful categories. In fact, one time in Luke 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Yes. Yes, he does. (laughs) I could just end it there. Go and do likewise. Go, Go eat with sinners. Please, eat with sinners. And share with them God's love. But anyhow, I got carried away. Verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you... Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Luke 15 is a triple parable chapter. Say that three times fast. The first one is about the lost sheep, and then he goes and he finds the lost sheep, and he leaves the ninety-nine. We've got a whole song about it, and then he comes back, and there's rejoicing. Then he's got the story about the woman who lost the coin. And then she searches and searches. She finds it. There's rejoicing. And then, of course, the last one is the son, the prodigal son. He leaves. He goes off and he parties and everything else. And then he comes back and they, he, he repents. And there's rejoicing. Jesus tells these three parables because these guys were criticizing how he hung out with sinners. How he hung out with people that their society considered to be outcasts. That was Jesus' behavior. That was his norm. But not only that, he also spent time and even touched lepers. He spent time with the blind, the lame, the the people that were just like out of their minds, right? Whether from demon activity. Have you ever been around somebody that's got some sort of demonic situation going on? It is not a comfortable environment, right? (laughs) Those of you who know what I'm talking about. Or people who have uh, other conditions like epilepsy or other uh, conditions that caused them to be really different. Jesus was with those people. He healed a lot of those people, but he also spent time with them before and after. So I think that's important. So I, this is where I land on it. I would say for myself, okay? I have received a, a biblical sexual ethic that limits sexual expression to marriage between a man and a woman, 
Right? That's what I've received. I did not invent that. I received that. Centuries and centuries, thousands and thousands of years old. I received it, I, and, I, and I accept it because I believe it's from God. That's where I stand, okay? As far as what I think is right and wrong. But then I have the example of Jesus, and Jesus spends time with people who are breaking the rules. Can I not do both? Is there some way I can do both that I can still recognize the morality that God has provided and live that out in my life and then also spend time and show love to those who are breaking the rules, to show love to people who don't even know what the rules are, to show love to somebody like this Leslie who was just turned out because you know, of, of this issue. It's called gender dysphoria, if, if you're interested in it. Uh, look it up online, but it's an acute mental anguish experience when you see yourself as the biological sex that you happen to be, that you experience this, this mental anguish. It's, it's, it's a real thing. I'm not saying every trans person experiences this. I'm just saying in the, in the example I used here, that's what's going on. But the simple fact is, I have not done that in my life. I grew up in a culture where it was normal to call some activity or something that somebody did that just didn't work out just to call it gay and to use that as an insult, almost like a synonym for the word dumb. Uh, like, say, Andy and I are playing basketball, and Andy shoots it over the backboard. I say, oh, that was gay. That, I mean, that's, that's the culture I grew up in, was to use the, the term as, you know, for these people as an insult. That's the culture I grew up in. And it's not like distinctive to my religious upbringing, like, this is America, okay? This is what all my friends, uh, this is how we all talked. That's the culture that I grew up in. And when I became a serious Christian, when I decided to make my faith my own and I repented of my sins, and I said those, those words, Jesus is Lord, I did not change my behavior towards those who are same-sex attracted. I, I didn't. I, continue, I, I had received kind of like a worldly mindset against homosexual people and just kept that, kept going. I added Jesus, but I didn't change that part of my thinking. And so now I'm a real Christian, and then we get into the culture wars. And so we've got Hollywood, and as a Christian, I'm sensitive. I'm sensitive to how Hollywood portrays sexual issues because, you know, I have different rules in Hollywood. Uh, so Hollywood begins working hard to normalize gay and lesbian behavior. These gay pr pride parades started to get a lot of publicity. The media began using civil rights language like the struggle for marriage equality to describe the situation where gay and lesbian people were looking to get married to each other. And then in 2012, there was a controversy over the wedding cake. You remember this? It was already nine years ago now. It seems like it was yesterday, this wedding cake thing. Uh, so there was a Christian wedding cake baker, is that what you call him? Designer, whatever he was. He didn't want to violate his own sexual ethics and support gay marriage, so he, he didn't want to make a gay, a gay wedding cake, a wedding cake with, you know, that was for a gay wedding and had you know, the art on it and so on. Uh, what's interesting about that one, I don't wonder if how many of you ever heard the after story. So he got in big trouble in 2012 in Colorado. In 2013... A Colorado judge uh, said that the cake owner was in the wrong and that uh, they put all these rules on him. It was like really over the top government control. 
But then in 2018, the Supreme Court eventually declared that he was not guilty and that he was fine. <laughs> so I never realized the after story on that. But uh, then we had in uh, 2015, this is really the landmark moment for uh, gay and lesbian marriage. The Obergefell versus Hodges Supreme Court case, June 26, 2015, mandated all states to perform and recognize same-sex marriages. This is the, the battle, sort of like a steady march that I, I'm just speaking for myself. What I saw, what I experienced as a Christian who's taking my faith seriously, I see this whole thing march forward. And as I see these uh, progressions march forward, you know what I think to myself? I think... I must prepare to fight. That's what I think. So what do I do? I uh, do the research. I look up all the verses on the subject. You know, I look up Leviticus 18, 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and Romans 1, 27, and I, and I develop an apologetic. An apologetic is how to defend myself against people who are questioning my faith. I become embattled in the fight because I see the culture coming more and more against what I believe, so I prepare to fight. Uh, I loaded my guns, got ready for the Alamo. It's like, let's go. You coming in here? Psst, Romans 1.27. 1 Corinthians 6.9. Malachi or Senechite. I can say the questionable words in the Greek language, so now what you got? Right? I'm ready to go. But you know what? The, 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 the attack never came. The extremists never picketed. The activists never shut us down. Instead, you know what happened? We moved on to transgender. In 2015, President Obama was the first president to mention a transgender person as part of his, or people as part of his State of the Union address in January 20th. 2015 was huge for all this stuff, by the way. In 2015, the same, the same year same-sex marriage was legalized, Bruce Jenner came out as transgender, changing his name to Caitlyn and adopting feminine pronouns, eventually getting sex uh, reassignment surgery in 2017. In 2018, the first transgender person signed a contract to enter the military. In February of 2020, the Ninth Circuit of Appeals ordered the state of Idaho to pay for an inmate to have sex reassignment surgery. MTF is male to female. In March 2021, the first out transgender federal official confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and this person was confirmed as the Assistant Secretary for Health in the Department of Health and Human Services. And so I see, I see this steady march in this direction. So what do I do again? Say, all right, let me get a bazooka because these, these handguns aren't going to do it. Let's get something bigger over here. We can torpedo these trans people and their trans ideology and their trans activism and trans, trans, trans. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight the trans and I'm going to defend myself. And, you know, as a pastor, I'm going to defend my church and, and we're going uh, to fight this thing out and we're going to win because we've been here a long time as Christians. You, you might ask yourself the question, how do I respond at work? when they do a transgender training day at your job, which many, many jobs have already done. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with it at your work when it's Gay Pride Day and they give everybody a gay pride sticker and you say, oh, well, no thanks, I'm a Christian. 
These are real issues that we, that we have to face, many of us. Let me share with you a verse before suggesting a way forward here that I think really can help us alleviate some of the tension that we feel on this issue. This is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 through 13, where it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Don't hang out with people that are doing stuff outside of what God says is right. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy, and he just goes on a whole list of sins here. Greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul had written, this is 1 Corinthians, Paul had written them previous to this, I call that 0 Corinthians. He had written them previous to this, a letter, and had told the people, look, I don't want you guys involved with sexual immorality. And that's a broad category of anything that's outside the definition of what God says in Genesis 2.24 about the man and the woman in marriage, right? And he's saying, I, I told you, don't, don't even associate with those people. And they misunderstood him. They thought he meant no sexually immoral people at all because in a city like Corinth, just like in any city today, there's lots of sexually immoral people everywhere. And Paul says to them, you know, I'm not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Then you would need to leave the planet. Look, people, the world's going to be the world. Pagans are going to be pagans. That's what they do. That's what I did, right? Until you come to Christ, until you make that decision to follow Jesus, until you have your heart regenerated and you're born again, you're going to act like the world. That's just what everybody does. So if, if, if Paul says, don't eat with those people, you're not eating with really anybody anymore. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? This is really, I think, key. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. As Christians, we are not called to judge outsiders. We are called to decide what, what is right or wrong on the basis of how we have received from Scripture the truth of God. We are called to do that, but we don't, we don't judge outsiders. But we should recognize the importance of these issues when it comes to insiders, when it comes to somebody who dares to say, I'm a sister of Christ. I'm a brother in Christ. I am somebody who has said the words, Jesus is Lord. Because as soon as you say those three words, the rules are all different. <laughs> That's what those words mean. It means boss. It means master. Lord. So Jesus says on, on the day of judgment, there's going to be all kinds of people that come to him and say, oh, uh, Lord this and Lord that. And, and Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I don't know you. Who, who are you? So, Lord is a big word, and if we're going to say that, we do have different rules than the world. So I ask myself the question, uh, well, how should I treat people who are same-sex attracted or people who are uh, struggling with their identity and their gender and, and maybe they have already had a surgery? You know, we've had people in all these categories come to our church in the past. I don't know if you know that or not. We've had people who are same-sex attracted be part of our services. We've had a trans person who was part of our services for a long time. And then this person moved away. And th these, these are not easy questions to address. We had, we had an alcoholic in our church for, I don't, know, I don't remember, it was a year or two years before he finally repented and stopped with the drinking. 
Not only that, he was here drunk on Sunday mornings. You know how I know? I could smell it. And he loved to be here, and we gave him space. We gave him space so that God could do his thing and enter his heart. And you know what? Eventually he quit the drinking, and then he was, he was able to be set free from that. We've got to give people space to do that. I'm not talking about changing our rules. I'm talking about loving outsiders. I'm talking about hospitality, being welcoming to people. Because really, when it comes to sexual ethics, it's not an evangelism issue. It's a discipleship issue. It applies to those who have said, Jesus is Lord. How do you treat these people? Do you make fun of them? Do you look down on them? Back in the 80s, when there was the AIDS epidemic, did you say, oh, well, that's what they deserve? Can you see Jesus saying that? That's what they deserve. I don't think so. No, we need to say, here is someone to love. Just like we looked at last week, alcoholics and drug addicts, here is someone to love. Here is someone to love. Somebody comes in and it's a guy wearing a dress. Here is someone to love. Two lesbians come in and they're married to each other and they want to sit there. Here is someone to love. That's what we're called to do. We're called to love them. I'd like to close by reading the next part of Leslie's story here. Leslie quickly found love and acceptance among LGBTQ people, many of whom had also experienced ridicule from Christians. Leslie also fell in love with a woman named Sue, and they ended up getting married. Sue had a rare disease that caused her hands to shake. One night she went outside for a smoke, but her hands were shaking so badly that she, when she was lighting her cigarette, she lit herself on fire. Leslie was inside doing the dishes when they heard Sue screaming. Running outside to see what was happening, Leslie found Sue engulfed in flames. Immediately, Sue was rushed to the hospital, but the burns were too severe. Three days later, Sue died. Wow, that's some serious heartache, huh? The crushing blow of losing a spouse was unbearable. Half-dazed, Leslie scrambled to find a church that might be willing to do Sue's funeral. After not setting foot in a church for 18 years, Leslie called the only church they were aware of. It was the, a church Sue had once volunteered at, and it happened to be one of the most conservative churches in the area. The pastor picked up the phone. Stammering, Leslie said, Hi, my name is Leslie and my wife just died. We're lesbians, but... um." I want to know if you would do my wife's funeral. The pastor didn't say, let me think about that. Or, maybe, but you first have to know where we stand on the issue of transgenderism and the lesbian lifestyle. With compassion and conviction, the pastor said, we would be honored to. I'm so sorry for your loss, the pastor went on to say. You must be truly grieving right now. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a loved one. Please, Leslie, let us take care of all the details of the funeral, the cost, the arrangements, whatever you need. Please, Leslie, let us love you through your pain. The church surrounded Leslie with love, something Leslie had never felt from Christians. 
Leslie had experienced such love and kindness from the LGBTQ people, but not from Christians. And it was this simple embodiment of Christ-likeness that reignited Leslie's passion for Jesus and brought Leslie back to faith in Christ. Leslie will be hanging out with us for all, e- all eternity in the new creation, all because one pastor had the courage to manifest God's kindness. It's an interesting story because in the one incident with Leslie, the pastor said, get out of here. We don't want your kind around here. And then in the other incident, the pastor says, whatever you need, we're here for you. We want to just show you love. And Leslie was in a situation of not having enough money and not having the wherewithal to make arrangements and whatever else. And the pastor's uh, willingness to just say, look, we're just going to walk, walk with you through this. And just that alone, welcoming this person into the community, brought about a space for the heart to sort of taste and see that God is actually good. So I think that can serve as a good example for us on how we are to reach out to people who are LGBTQIA and anything else that might go along with that. Whatever their category is, God wants them. And so we should want them and you should want them and we should show them love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be lovers, that you would help us to recognize that You are a God who seeks to save those who are lost. And so we ask that you would help us to do that as well. We we repent, Father, where we've been insensitive, where we've been, or I'll speak for myself, where I've been, I've held the stereotypes or in some way said things that are hurtful. Just ask for your forgiveness for that in the past. Help us to do better in this area, not compromise, but to do it like Jesus and to reach out in love. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This brings this message to a close. What did you think? Uh, Can you relate to what I shared about my own experience going through this over the last decade or so? And my own sense of needing to repent of just unloving thinking and behavior, Uh, but at the same time holding to what Scripture teaches as the boundary for sexual expression for people. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Come on to restitutio.org and find episode 407, Reaching LGBT Plus People, and ask your question or share your own experience about this subject I did also want to mention the quote about Leslie that I used in this message is from Preston Sprinkle's excellent book, Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say, uh, a book that I don't personally agree with everything he says in it, uh, but man, it just totally educated me on so many areas of the whole trans subject where I was completely ignorant. And uh, Sprinkle comes from a really interesting point of view. He is a strong biblical authority, evangelical type, uh, but at the same time has just an amazing heart of compassion towards people, especially Christians who are struggling with gender dysphoria or any number of other trans-related issues. So uh, take a look at that book. I highly recommend getting that for yourself and reading it through. 
Also, if you hadn't yet, uh, take a look at the interview I did with Beckett Cook called A Change of Affection. That would be episode 292, so back a little ways a couple years ago. And uh, this episode is interesting because Beckett Cook himself is same-sex attracted. Some folks in that category would, would identify as gay and celibate. Others don't like to use the word gay. But the point is that he is single for Christ, and he is somewhat of an activist on behalf of the biblical sexual ethic and has a very successful YouTube channel now. Uh, But in this interview with him, uh, episode 292, he talks about how his book has been received and how this position that he staked out as a same-sex attracted, celibate Christian man uh, has really landed him into trouble with a number of different folks. So take a look at that, and uh, also his book, A Change of Affection, uh, very good book. I, I certainly recommend it, and I think it would uh, benefit you to see the same-sex attraction issue from the inside uh, rather than from the outside. Well, that's enough on this subject. is a very important subject, and I hope you give it some serious thought. I did want to also invite you to an event we have coming up, up at my church in New York, if you're able to travel. Uh, So far as uh, it is right now, looking in early September, our COVID numbers are very low in the state of New York, thankfully. And so we're going to go ahead with our Kingdom Fest event. Our theme for this year is Come and See. Uh, And the idea is to equip you to be a better to be better at reaching out to the lost, to be better at welcoming people in, to be better at making friends with unbelievers and inviting them to your house or inviting them to church or inviting them to home Bible studies so that they can taste and see that the Lord is good, so that they can experience God's goodness and His love and then hear His gospel message and have their own born-again, conversion, regeneration experience that can totally transform their lives. So uh, I encourage you that if you are able to travel and, and or live near the Albany, New York area, please come to Kingdom Fest. You can find more information about Kingdom Fest at LHIM, that stands for Living Hope International Ministries.org. LHIM.org, and you can uh, you can sign up. It's only seventy five bucks. Covers all your food and our other expenses, and bringing in some guest speakers. We've got Joe and Rebecca Martin coming in from Arizona. We've got Victor Gluckin coming in from Rhode Island. John McCave coming up from Long Island. Uh, Will Barlow coming in from Kentucky, and a number of others, including myself and my father, Vince Finnegan. So uh, please do. Make, uh, please do make it if you can. We'd love to see you. It's a great time of celebration. Housing is on your own. Uh, that's how we're able to keep the cost so low for the weekend. But there's a ton of hotels right near the church where, we'll, where we are holding the event. So please come if you can, lhim.org. would love to see you if you could make it. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, go on to restitutio.org where you can make a donation. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.